If you are looking for even more help and guidance on your breakup, I have a few different options for you to take your healing to the next level. I have four different online courses depending on what stage of the breakup that you're in from beginning all the way into moving on after heartbreak, or you can bundle all of my courses together and use the code podcast to get $25 off my course bundle. I also have my 30 day no contact challenge to help hold you accountable in going no contact with your ex. And we have our free Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with other people going through breakups all over the world. To learn more about any of these resources, head to the show notes where you can learn more about my courses, take the quiz to figure out which course is best for you, or join the Facebook group. And don't forget to use the code PODCAST to get $25 off my course bundle. Welcome to the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast with your host, Breakup Bestie, aka me, Kendra. Breakups are hard, but you don't have to do it alone. Each week, I will be taking you through a different topic as it relates to breaking up, healing from heartbreak, growing in your single life, dating, and getting back into happier and healthier relationships. The goal of this show is to provide support, hope, tips, and to remind you that above all, this too shall pass. Welcome back to another expert episode of the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast. Today is a special episode and a little different in the fact that me and today's guests don't actually talk about breakups at all during today's episode, but it's incredibly special because of who the guest is and what his story is. Today I'm joined by Kevin Hines, who is a speaker, advocate, author. You probably have heard his story somewhere on social media before, but when Kevin was 19, he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge in a suicide attempt and survived miraculously. The story is unbelievable. So we talk a lot about his story. We talk a lot about mental health and actually the way that he would like us to look at mental health, which I love, and talking really more about our brains being in pain. And I think his story is just so validating, and his point of view on mental health is just so validating for those like me who have struggles with it. We also talk a lot about his new book, which is called The Art of Being Broken, How Storytelling Saves Lives. And we talk about how he got started in telling his story. And I'm such a firm believer in storytelling and talking about what's going on with us because not only does it take the load off of us, it makes us feel not alone. And we ultimately end up helping so many people, which is a huge part of Kevin's story. So highly recommend the book. I'm so excited to read it and can't wait to share his story with you. It is such an honor to welcome Kevin Hines to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on and to share your story. I'm so glad to be here, Kendra. Nice to meet you. Yes. So great to meet you too. I would love, and I'm sure everyone gets started this way, but I would love if we could just start with your story of what brought you to your life's work at this point and walk us through what happened when you were 19 years old. Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, in order to understand what happened at 19, we've got to go a little further back to when I was born. Born to biological parents who, after they had me and my brother, they fell to say they succumbed to substance use disorder, primary alcoholism, drug addiction. And I always say that they loved us dearly, but they couldn't take care of us because they could barely take care of themselves. 
Yeah. And so they would leave my brother and I unattended. They would neglect us to go do score and sell drugs, which was how they kept a roof over our heads. So it was out of necessity and they had no one to help them and no one to turn to and no treatment centers to go to. They were alone. We were alone. And they left us unattended one too many times. And one very seedy motel clerk, basically we lived in and out of crack motels. These are the kind of places you pay for by the hour. And if you don't, you're out. And mom and dad did whatever they had to do, however illegal, to keep a roof over our heads. And one day uh, they took us into social services, into foster care, you know, a broken system then, a very broken system today. And we bounced around from home to home. We were taken from my mom and dad and we were placed into foster care. And we were supposed to be adopted together, but we both got bronchitis in foster care in a home that was neglectful and my brother died. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so the doctor said that at that point, they could determine that I developed severe detachment disorder from reality and abandonment issues have all been until today. But unlike my poor brother who passed away, I got very lucky. I landed in a great foster home, the Mullers, and it was a transitional home. And the foster parents would come from the area to see who to take home and adopt. And Debbie and Pat Hines, Debbie Hines in particular, visited that home looking for a little girl to be the sister of Elizabeth Catherine, the girl she'd already taken in with Patrick Hines. Except the first thing she saw was me. And as she says in her journal of those days, that was the moment she fell in love, which is mm-hmm. how I know the story, right? Because she, she yeah. journaled. And she went home to Patrick, Kevin Hines, my eventual namesake, and said, let's take him in. He needs us. And they took me in at nine months of age, but I was a very sick child. I was uh, violently ill all day, every day for 30 days. And and we went to every doctor, every specialist they could think of. And what they came back with was that there's nothing physically wrong with this, this child. It's all emotional, nine months of age. But that wasn't the whole truth. When you put the pieces of the puzzle together later, my birth parents had been feeding my brother and I only what they could steal. Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk was our first diet. Damaging our gut, ravaging our brains. Your gut-brain health connection is very important. Your gut microbiome, as you well know, houses and creates all of your body's serotonin and dopamine affecting your mental well-being. So if you're eating only processed foods from birth or at any age, you are damaging your brain's functionality at the cellular level. Yeah, I was by definition mentally ill from the very get-go of my life, from the stepping off point. That all said, I've scored recently a six on the ACE exams, adverse childhood experiences. And growing up in the Heinz home, I thought, I've got this. How can anything go south from here? I'm going to grow up. I'll get a good into that good school. I'll get that great job. I'll find a modicum of success because I've been given opportunity and a chance. My brother had no opportunity. My brother had no chance. He's gone. But I did. But at 17, my world came crumbling down and I, I had a complete brain health breakdown. My brain broke on stage in front of 1,200 people and I wouldn't get well really, really well for the better part of the next 20 years. At 19 years of age, 
I leapt off the Golden Gate Bridge to die by my hands, to die from suicide. I never say committed because I don't believe people commit crimes or you know, it's like you're saying they committed adultery or something like that. Yeah. No, they didn't, they didn't commit a crime. It sounds like a crime. Yeah. People die by suicide just like someone would die of any other organ disease. And yeah. this is a brain disease. We say in this country and around the world, mental health. Fine. I still use those terms because they're so familiar to other people and it's so simple and it's so normalized and commonplace. But I believe the terms mental health and stigma are very antiquated and need to be retired. Interesting. And I'm going to work on that for the rest of my advocacy because your brain is tangible. If they cut open your skull for surgery, they're going to touch it. It's as real as the hands in front of my face. Mental is in the ether. It's up here. And there's a negative connotation to the term mental all by itself. When I ask audience that I speak to of thousands, who here amongst us would love to be labeled mental for the rest of your life? Please raise your hands. Nobody's hand goes up. Nobody wants that title, that label next to them. And we're so focused on labels in this life. Even me as a, a speaker, an author, a storyteller, it's all a label. So my point to people is that stigma is not a strong enough word. Neither is mental. It's brain health. It's a brain disease. And stigma is not a strong enough word because we don't call racism, bigotry, prejudice, hatred, stigma. We call it racism, bigotry, hatred, and prejudice. What's happening to people around the world who struggle with brain health issues is pure and simple discrimination. When we can't get adequate health care coverage and parity healthcare coverage for our brains than we can get for a broken arm or a broken leg or liver, heart, lung, or kidney disease. Something is wrong. And I say this as a person who 15 years ago, right, uh, you know, five years after my advocacy began, I fought with Congressman Patrick Kennedy to pass the parity bill, to act for legislation to equalize mental health and physical health. Well, Insurance companies haven't followed the letter of the law for all of this time. No. Some do better than others. Some are working on it. Absolutely. Aetna's doing a great job for sure. But most don't care. And it's, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts me. It makes me so sad because if your gut to brain health is so interconnected and so symbiotic, why have we not, since First Lady Rosalind Carter said it 70 years ago, called it just health? As a person who went to the Golden Gate Bridge to die, who leapt off, who fell those 250 feet, 25 stories at 75 miles an hour, nearing the speed of terminal velocity in four seconds, praying on the way down to God that I would live, hitting the water, going down all those feet, opening my eyes, being alive where where 99.9% of the people who have done what I did are gone, you know, making my way to the surface, nearly drowning after that having a sea lion come to my aid. This is Herbert right here, sea lion. Oh my, I love that. Saving my life and keeping me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. Having one of the foremost back surgeons on the West Coast, Dr. Jonathan Levin, thank God for this man. He came in there and he wasn't supposed to be there that day. He opted to do my surgery with his team, saving me the ability to stand, walk and run. He invented the surgery for me and the time had never been done anywhere in the world. He created it for my situation. It's incredible. And now that surgery, that exact same surgery has saved 13 more Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors from dying. Wow. You know, 
of the 39 Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors, 26 have come forward to say, uh, pardon me, 26 remain alive today. Many okay. have died of natural causes or old age. 19 have come forward like I have to say they all had the same instant regret that I did the moment their hands left the ramp. Now you look at that and you can track thousands of people from around the world, maybe more, who have come out and said that in the moment of their attempt, whether it be mild, moderate to severe, their first thought, what have I just done? I don't want to die. It's instinctual. By nature, human beings are designed to survive all things. So when you take that terrible act, when you move forward on that act and you implement it, you have regret. Because your life kind of flashes and you go, wait a minute, I've got more to do here. What have I just done? I don't want to die. It doesn't happen to everybody. It happens to a lot of people. My question is how many other Golden Gate Bridge jumpers who are gone forever had that same instant regret the moment their hands left the rail? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just glad to be anywhere. Yeah. I mean, clearly your story just, it's like goosebumps after goosebumps hearing all of the ways that whatever people want to look at, I call them like God shots or whatever they are of like, you were meant to to be here. You were meant to be on this journey to help other people. And as a result of that, you've helped thousands and impacted millions of people through your story. And just going back real quick to what you were saying about the Parity Act and everything. I'm in recovery from addiction for 10 years and I worked in substance abuse treatment centers for a really long time. My husband actually works for a behavioral health billing company and the things that they have to deal with to just get people help is unbelievable, unbelievable. The things that they're saying that people only need seven days of treatment to fix a very physical disease in their brain. And there's so much more research now where you look at people's brains who have these things and it's there, it's tangible. It's not just this thing that we're speaking like hypothetically about anymore. We have the brain scans to show that it is a brain disease. Yeah. I mean, I want to give a huge shout out to Dr. Daniel Amen. Yeah. Uh, we had him on the podcast too. Yeah, I just saw him change your brain, change your life is just one of his many books, but He's helping to change my life because I went to see him and he showed me why I have the psychosis I have. He showed me the pieces of my brain that have what appear to be holes in them. And the reasoning behind, scientifically at least, the reasoning behind my struggles are very, very physical. They're in my brain. They're very visible. They're very real. You can see them. And if we could just do this for everybody if we could just show people in families and friend networks who are like, oh, snap out of it, get over it, pull yeah. yourself up by a brooch. I saw in your head. Yeah, that's where my brain is. Of course, it's yeah. in my head. You know, I just, uh, I hope that the people that don't empathize, don't comprehend, don't understand, I hope they will someday do the work to educate themselves to remove any arrogance or any ignorance and try listening to someone with brain pain to understand not to respond. Yeah. When you had that brain scan by Dr. Amen, I actually had him scan my brain about eight years ago. And, and like he was a fortune teller, honestly, he said, have you had trauma? I was like, yep. So many things about me he could tell me just by looking at my brain when I hadn't told him anything was truly remarkable. Did you have a feeling of like, was there any validation or just knowing that 
okay, this is all very real. It was a great deal of validation because one of the things I battle with is severe hallucinations of very scary things, almost like evil, dark, terrifying things, things that no one wants to see. They keep me up at night, if you know what I mean. Yeah. They keep me wide-eyed during the day when they occur in, in when I'm awake. Dr. Amen showed me a massive hole in my brain where those types of visions or thoughts come from, you know, and I know that, that, that the religious person would say they're demons and they're this and that, but, and I'm very religious, so I'm not discounting that I'm, I'm, I'm a yeah. Catholic, but I have a full force belief in God. And, and I fully believe God saved my life that day. I called out to God. I prayed that I would live on multiple occasions in that day. And, and a sea lion kept me afloat into the Coast Guard border right behind me. I mean, you know, how is that not a miracle? But but I let people believe what they want. That's everyone else's prerogative. I, I know what I believe. I know what I have in my heart. But Dr. Amen showed me the exact spot in the brain that these things would come from and that they happened to a lot of people with brain damage. And I had had uh, five or six concussions before I was 15 and probably more later. So this is uh, all very real. Yeah. And my brain is very much damaged. I live with epilepsy and seizure disorder to add to that. And but all of that said, I look at all of this pain I've experienced as a lesson and a pathway to hope and healing. I might be in pain. I'm in a lot of physical pain most minutes of most days because of what I did off that bridge. I can't take that back. I can't, right now I can't fix that. Maybe stem cells will solve that down the line. I don't know, but that's expensive. Yeah. But I can't fix that right now. I don't take pain meds because I did for a while. It didn't go well. So with the pain I experienced both here and here, I believe in the idea that pain is inevitable. It's coming for all of us if it hasn't already. I also believe that suffering is optional choice. And a lot of people judge me when I say that, but hear me out. Every clinician, every doctor I used to have before the ones I have now that agree with me told me I was suffering from bipolar, suffering from depression, suffering from mental illness, and suffering from eating disorders when I was a high school wrestler. And then again, in 2018, big time. No pause to say that as a man. They told me I was suffering, 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 suffering. So what did I do? I adopted that narrative as my own. I took that story in. I became a sufferer. Mm -hmm. I vlogged about it, wrote about it. I made movies about it. But that only made me the victim of my story. And if you are the victim of your story, even if you've been victimized, you can never grow. You sit in victimhood and you sit in suffering, unable to move forward for the rest of your life, if that's what you believe. But if you make a choice to fight your pain in spite of your pain, despite of your pain, then someday, guess what? You get to thrive again. You get to survive your pain and you get to defeat it instead of letting it defeat you. You let it build you brick by brick from the ground up until you become stronger than ever. And I'm not pushing the idea that vulnerability isn't important. It is. Vulnerability is crucial. That's why I'm telling all of this story to you right now in the hope, the wish, and the prayer that the people listening, viewing, and watching hear something in this message and go, wait a minute, I could do this. He can do it. I can do it. She can do it. Yeah. I can do it. I can fight my pain. I can survive my pain. I can thrive someday. 
And that's my main goal on this planet is that, you know, people ask me what my purpose is all the time. I have multiple purposes. We all do. My purpose is to be a great husband to my wife, Margaret. The love of my life, my very best friend. My purpose is to be a good godfather to my two godchildren, Zoe and Judah. Zoe and Judah, I love you. My purpose is to be a great son to my parents, a great sibling to my siblings. And my purpose is to travel this world 300 days a year, sharing a story with the huge hope that somebody in that audience, no, a lot of people in that audience decide to stay, or at the very least decide to go to someone next to them and say, I need help now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I agree with you and I love your message because your philosophy is, hey, I can own the fact that I have brain pain. I have this, but it, in spite of that, I'm still moving forward. You're not being dismissive of someone's experiences or things that they have, but it's saying, okay, now that we know this, how can we move forward? And I think that's something a lot of people miss. It's either we're going to invalidate it or we're going to hyper-focus on how we're going to stay in the problem instead of moving into the solution. I don't want to invalidate anyone's pain. I want you to own your pain. I want you to hold gratitude inside your pain. Because if you're grateful for the worst moment in your life, then you can survive anything. Because you're not grateful really for the moment. You're grateful that you're still here past the moment or, or moments that were the most painful in your life. You're grateful that you had the resilience to remain listening to this podcast right now. You know, and and your, you know, I always say this, your story is just as important as mine. I just happen to be the guest today. Your story is just as important. And find that one person, that one person to empathize with your pain. You know, if you have to search high and low, far and wide for that person, then you do that. If you really believe you have no one and nothing to turn to, then you become your own best advocate for change. You read every article you can to balance your brain health. Now, I recognize this is not easy for everyone, for some people who have severe schizophrenia, for some people who have been regular, true victims of abuse. No, no, I get that. I fully recognize that. I'm talking about the individuals who are laying in bed right now with the blanket over them, immersed in darkness and depression, who could just say to themselves, if I just get out of this bed, it's a win. If I just get out of this bed, I'm a champion. Then you do that the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. And then besides just getting out of the bed, oh, on the fifth day, you go to the gym. On the fifth day, on the seventh day, you go call your primary care physician and tell him you're depressed. On the 21st day, you tell your closest friend that you're having thoughts of taking your life, and then you get to be safe because you vocalized your pain, you owned it, and you stayed right here. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, kind of moving into your new book that just came out, The Art of Being Broken, How Storytelling Saves Lives. I think so much of this, I'm just so curious, like, when did the storytelling, when did the advocacy work for you? How did that start? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
It is so important to share your thoughts and feelings while going through a breakup, especially if it's something you're feeling any guilt or shame around. I know whenever I'm struggling with a certain thought or situation and I keep it to myself, it gets heavier and heavier and feels harder and harder to manage. I truly believe we are as sick as our secrets. Therapy has always been a safe space for me to have a judgment-free zone to get things off my chest. Whether it's something from my past, a current struggle, or something I'm anxious about in the future, I always feel lighter when I'm able to share something that feels scary. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartbreak today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartbreak. If you are a listener of this podcast, you know I warn about how your phone can either be a great tool or a huge obstacle when it comes to getting over your breakup. Instead of spending time on your phone trying to figure out what your ex is up to, why not spend some time engaging in a super fun mystery game that will help take your mind off your breakup? June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I am such a big mystery and puzzle fan, so this game has been so fun for me to get into. When I'm looking for a little escape from reality during the day or a way to relax that doesn't involve social media, it's been so fun to use my brain in a new way by diving into June's captivating quest and engaging my sense of observation to find the hidden clues. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Since getting sober over 11 years ago, most of my friends don't drink, and last month at my birthday dinner, we were going around the table talking about our favorite non-alcoholic drink, and almost everyone at the table was talking about how much they love recess, me included. Not only is recess mood a delicious drink, strawberry rose is my favorite, but they also have raspberry lemon, which is so good, lime citrus, and more. It's made with real fruit. It's only 20 calories, and it comes with functional ingredients like stress-balancing adaptogens and mood-lifting magnesium, so it can also bring me a much, much needed moment of peace. So whether you're like me and are always on the hunt for functional and tasty non-alcoholic drinks, or you're just looking for something healthy to unwind at the end of the day, recess mood should be your go-to. You deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash heartbreak and get 15% off recess mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. So I love telling this story. Two clergymen told me I should tell my story and I had no intention of doing so even after they told me. I was completely reluctant, very embarrassed, very ashamed from what I did. And in my first psych ward stay after the physical rehabilitation, after the jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, I was wearing my back brace and walking with my cane, went from a wheelchair to a, a back brace and a walker to a back brace and a cane, then right in my first psych ward because you can't just go home after that. And then, so I'm in the I'm in the first psych ward stay and it, the, the chaplain of the hospital was a Franciscan friar, Catholic, and he, he had the black robe and the white rope that tied it together and the sandals, you know, the, with the open toes and the stark white hair. And he, he comes into my room and this guy would always look at the chart before he came in the room. He didn't look at the chart this day. He just walked right in. First time in 30 years he ever did that. He felt compelled to walk into my room as he's seeing me put on my back brace. And he just goes, he's really jovial and happy. And he goes, 
hey, kid, what are you in for? And I was like, <laughs> uh, brother, I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And I'm, I've just learned how to put on the back brace by myself. And he goes, ha, and I'm the Pope. He didn't believe me. And I was like, no, brother, that's what happened. That's why the back brace, that's why the cane. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I feel so silly. Here, come on, let's pray. And he sits down next to me. He sits oh down next gosh. to me on my bed. And he, he says, let's do a Hail Mary and Our Father. So we do it and do the Hail Mary and the Our Father prayer. And he looks at me and he goes, kid, when you get better, you ought to talk about this. And I looked at him and I was like, about what to who? I said that. And he goes, you'll see. Every day, Brother George Cherry would come into my room. Every day, he would pray with me the same prayers. Every day, he would say when he left, kid, when you get better, you ought to talk about this. And he was a character. And it was just, I ignored him every day. Last day of the hospital stay, my father's picking me up. I've been in there for a month. I've been in and out of the white-walled padded room with a straitjacket on, which was illegal by that time in California, but they still used it. It was rough. My dad comes to pick me up. I'm wobbling with my cane and my back brace. Here comes Brother George Terry. Kevin, when you get better, I expect you'll talk about this. I was like, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I go and my father takes me to church a few days later on a Sunday. We go to church and the priest there, who frankly, Father Michael Harriman ended his career as a Monsignor, retired now. Monsignor Michael Harriman, he baptized me, confirmed me, and married me, my wife and I. So it's wow. an incredible long-term relationship and a friendship. And he comes out of the service. And I felt like the service was talking right to me. Like my dad went to him beforehand and was like, this is what you need to say to my son. Yeah, I need you to really tailor today to my son. <laughs> tailor today's service because my dad was on their board, so that was possible. Yeah. So uh, he comes out and he goes, Kevin, how would you, I'm so glad you're here today. So glad you came to church. How would you like to come and talk to our seventh and eighth grade class this good Friday? And I was like, oh, oh, father, I don't have a speech and I wouldn't know what to say. And my dad shoves me forward with his oven mitt sized hands and goes, he'll do it. I was like, what? And he goes, you'll do it. We need closure. And I'm thinking, you need closure, old man. I need to go home and lay down. Yeah. Well, good Friday rolls around. I write a speech until three in the morning that day. <laughs> Not very mentally healthy. My father edits it at seven in the morning. At nine in the morning, I go to the rectory in front of 127th and 8th grade Catholic student kids. The same school I went to. Is Not the kindest crowd either, 7th and 8th graders. No, no. Let me, let me, we'll talk about that in a minute if we yeah. have time. When I was at that school, I'll tell you, it was brutal. They treated me very poorly because I was part black and that's a whole nother world. But the bullying that I experienced was vicious. So this is like These a very kids, layered thing that you're doing yeah, too here. Thing. I'm, going to, I'm going to the school that tormented me for eight, for seven years before I left for eighth grade to go somewhere else to a predominantly black school that welcomed me with open arms day one. So yeah. Well, here I was in front of 120 students in their, in their uniforms, and I am petrified. I'm holding onto my cane with my right hand. I'm leaning my back brace up against a table so I don't fall. I've got my paper, my 17-page speech in my hand, took 45 minutes to read aloud. I timed it the night before. I'm dropping page by page to the floor with my thumb, reading from the page. 
I get to the last page, I drop it. I think, who did that help? What a waste of time. What am I doing here? Immediately, eight hands go up. Did I just make an impact? Yeah. The first hand, I call him the first kid in the back in the left corner. He asked the most inappropriate question a kid could ask in high school at a, at a Catholic school. And the nun goes, don't answer that. And I was like, I wasn't going to. And then seven more intuitive, empowering, important, and moving, and kind questions. Wow. It was definitely an impact. And I go home and I think, well, I'm never going to do that again. And then two and a half weeks later, Father Michael Herman calls me and says, Kevin, I need you to come to the rectory. I've got something for you. And I'm like, oh, you know, Father, I, my dad's at work. I can't get up there. He was like, please. And I was like, I got to huck up two miles with my back brace and my cane to that rectory, but I'm, I'm going to do it in the heat. So I go up there. I'm sweating through my back brace. I get there. I'm having an asthma attack. I take my inhaler right in front of him. He sits me down. He hands me a manila envelope and he says, open it. I open the envelope, 120 letters from 120 kids. Now make no mistake. They were mandated to write the letters. They weren't like, let's all write to the suicidal yeah. guy enthusiastic. But they write these letters nonetheless. And, and the letters were screened by the parents and teachers, counselors watching. This is important. If you serve underage kids, 18 and below. The letters were screened. Six of the kids were actively suicidal. They wrote it in their letters. Everybody else said thank you and what and how they were moved by the presentation. But six people, six children said they were in the crisis right now. Because they were screened by adults, we got them the help they needed. Two of those kids are therapists today. I always say I get to be here. I get to be here. It is both a privilege and a gift to exist. We have a one in 400 trillionth of a chance to simply exist, to be birthed into this world. One in 400 trillionth. That means you're never meant to die by your hands. Suicide is not the option. It's the problem. Suicidal ideations are the greatest liars we know. You don't have to listen to them. Two things you can do if you ever become suicidal. These are the two things I do as someone who lives with chronic thoughts of suicide that plague me, but they'll never take me. I'm making a choice to live, to commit to life. It's the only time I'll use that word. To choose life every time. Two things. I find a mirror, any mirror, anywhere. I look in that mirror and I say, one, my thoughts do not have to become my actions. They can simply be my thoughts. They don't have to own, rule, or define what I do next. Thus, I never have to attempt to die in the first place. Two, I turn to anyone willing to hear me. And I've done this in front of crowds of 5,000 in public at a speech. I turn to anyone willing to listen to me, mostly my wife, Margaret, thank God for her. I say four simple but very effective words. I need help now. And I don't stop saying I need help now until someone gives it to me. We can't wait for someone to save us. We have to save ourselves. Yeah. We have to save ourselves. Nobody's coming to save you. Now everybody's so stuck on their phones. That's all they're doing. Nobody's yeah. looking around to see if everybody's okay. We have to be the ones to become our own best advocate. Yeah. I mean, I, I was listening to you on another podcast and that I know that was a part of that day when you were 19 is you wanted so badly for someone to just ask how you were doing. And I know yeah. being in, you know, being in that state where it feels like someone would have to open the door for you because it just seems so hard to to open it yourself that that day. But I think saying the words I need help is 
one of the most powerful things anyone can say. I think we have to put the, I don't want to invalidate someone who feels like they can't reach out to anyone because they've been so neglected or so abused. I just want you to, to change your perspective. Yeah. If you say you're a sufferer or a victim for the rest of your life, you're stuck. You're stuck. You'll never move forward. But if you choose the hero's journey and you say, I'm going to fight to be here every moment of every day, I'm just going to get to tomorrow. You understand. Maybe when people who live with substance use disorder, like my birth parents, like you, you did in the past, and they go, they go, I'm not worried about staying sober for the rest of my life. I'm worried about staying sober till tomorrow, mm-hmm. just tomorrow. So in the same sense, I say beer tomorrow for someone who's suicidal. I say it to someone who lives with substance use issues of any kind. Just choose, make a choice, fight it, put all the willpower toward it, take all the, the, the science-backed, evidence-based tools and techniques to, to work through it, do your meditation, and just just don't do the drug or the illicit drug or, or drink the drink until tomorrow. Then when tomorrow comes, you make that decision all over again one more time. Yeah. And then someday you got 30 days. And then someday you got 50 days. And then someday you got two years. And if you go back on that substance one time, don't lose control. That doesn't mean you're a failure. That doesn't mean you're bad. That doesn't mean you messed up. It means you have a disease and brain health issues or mental issues and addictions are the only two diseases we still blame people for when they have absolutely no control after it starts. Yeah. So let's be kind. To each other. Yeah. I just got into a, I'm probably not worth the argument, but I got into an argument with someone in my comments the other day about saying it was a moral failure. And I was like, honestly, it's people like you that made me feel like such a piece of shit when I was trying to get sober because I felt like I was just morally bankrupt. Like, I just thought I was a really bad person who was inept to handle my life when really it was something biologically going on in my brain. And I want to go back to that first time you told the story. What was there a feeling of relief? Was there a feeling of what did it feel like? That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. Thank you for that. It felt like a massive weight left my shoulders. Yeah. And has been off of my shoulders since that day. Yeah. It felt like the day I met my birth sister and birth brother. Separate days, but those days felt similar. It felt like a void had been filled in my chest. You know? And in that moment, you know, before that day, before speaking, I didn't I didn't think I would ever do that again. I didn't think this would be a thing. And then here I am, my dad is in his office at the house in his room and he's reading 120 letters back to back and he drops the last letter and he turns to me and says, Kevin, we have to do this however, wherever and whenever possible. Wow. And we've never stopped. Whether it was with my dad or with my wife who spoke with me in the past or with the Coast Guard officer that saved one of the Coast Guard officers that saved my life. Shout out to the Coast Guard. They're incredible. They get not enough credit for what they do. The officers on the bridge, the patrol officers who, who who save lives often. But the Coast Guard in particular, they see the bodies. And because they're not combat veterans, they very rarely see the care they need to recover from what they've experienced off the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm glad to say that my father founded the Bridge Rail Foundation with Dave Hull and Paul Muller after the film The Bridge came out in 2006. 
my father and I are featured in. And we, amongst other folks like Dana Whitmer, the Gamboa family, the Story family, and so many other people I can't name because it would take too long. Everybody on the Bridge Rail Foundation, everybody from Prop 63, everybody at all the mental health organizations that signed the petition to make this happen. As of December of this year, not one more person will ever again die off the Golden Gate Bridge. And it will become the largest, brightest, and most powerful beacon for suicide prevention around the world. Wow. For 23 years. And it all started after the film The Bridge came out in Tribeca and uh, San Francisco Film Festival. Everybody got together and was like, we have to do this now. Yeah, it took 23 years, but but that's the point. Like a small group of like-minded people can get together and change the world. Yeah. And it started with you telling that story. And I just, storytelling has been such a big part of my story. I was very active in in 12-step meetings for a long time. And and I just never forget the the times that I heard someone tell a part of my story that I was so deeply ashamed of. And it was just all of a sudden it like took a wall down. And it the biggest relief that I can experience from hearing someone say, I did that. I've thought that. I've said that. This has happened to me. Just and I'm sure it happened to the six people that, you know, when you were speaking that first time, the six out of 120 kids being able to open up that conversation and opening that gateway completely changed their lives forever. Stories are 22 times more memorable than statistics or facts. We can do death by PowerPoint until the end of time, but storytelling is what's going to change a mind, change a life, keep someone here, change their perspective, change their viewpoint, make them do something different. And that doesn't mean a story necessarily on a big platform and a stage in front of 5,000 or 50,000. Sometimes it just means two people in a room telling stories and one person changes their whole life. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about what's in the book? Because I know it's not just you. There's other people featured in the book as well. It's right here. If I can, there we go. Yeah. The Art of Being Broken Storytelling Saves Lives. It's awesome. Not because of me, because of the six contributing authors and the one other story I tell in the book. Let me just talk a little bit about those folks. So Lindsay Dunbar had five miscarriages and brain health issues because of it, with her, along with her husband. Uh, they struggled deeply because they could not uh, have a child together, which is all they wanted for so long with their marriage. And, and they're still working on it. So who knows what's going to happen now? But her story, their story is really palpable in the book. It's really powerful. And it's something that if you've ever dealt with losing a child in pregnancy, like my wife, Margaret, and I have lost our boy, Jack Ryan. I can't imagine. I hate having lost one. I can't imagine having lost five. Ashley Hunt in the book survived a sexual assault. She also lost her her mom to substance use disorder, much like me and, and my birth mom and dad. And her story is, oh, I don't think I didn't, when I did the audio recording of this book, I think I cried during all, all the stories, like just throughout the whole thing that we had to do a lot of cutaways. So, but you might cry during the stories, you might need a tissue box, but you'll also, by the end of each story, you'll feel so empowered to change your life. It, it's incredible. Dana Whitmer. Dana Whitmer is on the Bridge Rail Foundation. She's been a board member for years. She lost her son, Matthew, to the Golden Gate Bridge, never recovered the body. It's been a very tough, long while for Dana. And she's just absolutely an incredible advocate for change. She is one of the biggest reasons the net is going up because she was the one really behind writing the legislation and there was a white paper put together to change this effort. So she was a big advocate for that movement. Uh, we love her dearly. 
And then there's Brandy Benson. Brandy Benson is an author and a, a sarcoma cancer survivor. It's a very low survival rate that have, that you survive from you and sarcoma cancer. They had to remove an entire piece of her leg. She was a military veteran. She had to leave her duties in the military to tend to her disease. And she's uh, dealt with suicidal ideations, attempts, and survived all of it. And she's in, her story is incredible. Pat Lawson from Australia. I call him Patio. He's amazing. He lives with anxiety and depression and suicidal tendencies. And he's got uh, two beautiful kids at home in, in Karwa in Australia. And he has dedicated his life to giving back to people all throughout Australia who need help. And, and all of them really have dedicated their lives to this. Jazz Rawlinson, also from Australia. I have a lot of Australian friends in the book. She survived domestic abuse uh, from her father and she survived a sexual assault as well. And her story is absolutely heart pounding. And then you've got Joe Williams, who is not a contributing author, but I decided to write part of his story in the book because he's just such a good friend, also from Australia, Aboriginal man. And he tells his story through the lens of someone who's been discriminated against since he can remember, since he was a kid for what he looks like, just like me. And he's an incredible friend of mine. And they're all heroes to me in the book. They've all gone through so much, achieved so much after what they've gone through. And that's my point of this book. You can read this book and you can find the story in it that relates to you. It's not about my story. It's about our story, all of us. And we're encouraging people to reach out to my social medias and share their story because we'd like to make a sequel to this book. Amazing. Amazing. And I would say too, even if you haven't gone through the exact same things, the people in this book, just relating to the, so many of us go through the same feelings and the same thoughts and the same, even if it's maybe on a smaller scale than some of the things in the book. I always try to remind people to look for the similarities and not the differences when we hear stories, because it's so important that we recognize we're all human. We all have, most of us have the same feelings and the same thoughts. So much is universal and we, so many of us feel alone in that. That's the thing. Pain is universal, right? So yeah. it's not about whether it's, on, not about whether it's the bridge or not. It's not, that's not it. It's yeah. that you can relate to pain. Everybody yeah. can relate to pain. And whether it's grief from a loss of a loved one or a grandmother that passed away that was your favorite person in the whole world and grandma's gone and you miss her so much and you're brokenhearted and it's making you depressed and then you become suicidal, that's your story. So just you'll find a part of this book that will speak to you. Before we go, before we close out, I would love if you could, as part of your story, it wasn't so many people think, okay, this one thing and that must have cured everything. You never struggled with stuff again, but that's not part of your story. And what have been the things that have helped you with your brain pain and your brain health? What are the the top things that that you that have worked for you? The top things that have helped me with my brain health are rigorous honesty with mm. my diagnosis and disease and my my symptoms, being completely transparent and accepting that I have this disease, whether I want to label or not. Then exercise, exercising three to six times a week, 23 minutes a day, sometimes usually twice a day, 23 minutes of rigorous exercise leads to 12 hours of better mood. Mm. So that twice a day, 24 hours of better mood, eating anti-inflammatory meals, as often as I can, I don't do it all the time, but as often as I can, because they feed my brain and they make me feel better. Yeah. Utilizing forms of therapy that are not necessarily clinically based. Some of them are, but the ones that aren't, I'm trying to master so I can train my body and my mind to stay stable, even in the darkest of times. 
So art therapy, music therapy, blue wave light box therapy, all things I can do on my own. So, Mm -hmm. and then when I do have talk therapy, which I do love, because you can tell I talk too much, but but I do love it. But I've, I've lowered that a lot because now when I'm down and when I'm hurting, I talk to my wife and we have a more productive conversation than one with my therapist because she knows me through and through and there's no qualms about it. It's a very simple conversation and it's a very raw and real and honest conversation. And there's no hesitancy in what I'm going to say or not say because she was there to see it. So, So there's that. And, but I do believe in clinical therapy as well, but also, so exercise, anti-inflammatory foods, therapy of all kinds, the kind that find the kind that works for you, master the kind that is masterable, that, that, that you can educate yourself on. Then there's education, reading every book, every document, every white paper that's come out about bipolar disorder. I have a Google alert on bipolar disorder. I have a Google alert on mental health. I have a Google alert on brain health. I am educating myself every day as to my struggles so that I know the newest forms of treatment so I can defeat them. Those are just a handful of things you can do. And for those of you who want to learn more, you can go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Kevin Hines. There's over 800 videos all designed to better your brain health. I love that. And I love the the educating yourself too, because it's it's also a way of investing in yourself. You're saying I'm I'm worth knowing as much as I can about this and to continue to work on this. So I I just think that's such a great investment in yourself too. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm so glad you exist. I'm so glad that you're here today and everything that you're doing is just such a gift to this planet. So I encourage everyone to to go get your book, The Art of Being Broken, How Storytelling Saves Lives. We'll link it in the show notes. We'll link your YouTube in the show notes as well. And yeah, we're just very grateful for you. Thank you very much, Kendra. Feelings mutual. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you loved it, I hope you'll leave a review and share with your friends. If you're not already following me on Instagram, head to at your breakup bestie where I'm sharing new content almost every day. To join our Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with thousands of people from all over the world going through breakups, head to the link in the show notes. And don't forget to check out my online courses for more in-depth help through your healing journey. I always end these episodes the same way, reminding you to be nice to yourself, stay connected with loved ones, and the biggest reminder is that this too shall pass. I promise.